And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. And I have to tell you, friends, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult, but Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably, and they have the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io or click the link in the show notes to learn more. Friends, we have with us today, I I think y'all know by now if you listen to my episodes that I like talking to people that I like. Uh, I invite them onto the show. I invite them on to be my guests. And today we have a guy... I don't know him very well, I'm not gonna lie, but I've seen him out in the Kansas City community and I've seen him doing only good and connecting with incredible people that I deeply admire. So when I saw him out and about, I was like, hey, Cornell Ellis, do you wanna be on Startup Hustle? Cause I wanna, I wanna learn a little bit more about you, Cornell, and I wanna do it with an audience, apparently. <laughs> Cornell Ellis, executive director of Block Brothers Liberating Our Communities. And we're gonna talk about a bunch of really cool stuff, but hey, Cornell, thank you for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thank you. I always yeah. love the opportunity to be able to chat with folks and get to know people, especially when there's an audience. So yeah, <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna. It's like we're having coffee in a coffee shop and we're having a conversation, but a bunch of people just happen to be listening in. Happen to and be I'm listening fine. in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get right into it. So, Cornell, I got to ask you. Tell us about your journey, my friend. Well, it's been a. A uh, long and winding one, I think, is this what they call it. Um, I am a product of Kansas City, Missouri public schools um, and private schools. So I'm from uh, the Kansas City area. My mother is uh, also from Kansas City. My grandmother was born in Arkansas on my mother's side. Okay. <laughs> second, third, second, third generation here in Kansas City. Um, from that side, my dad, his family is from Mississippi. Um, and then they migrated to St. Louis and my mother and my father met in, at Mizzou in, uh, 1975. Um, I always include those stories when I talk about my own, because it's so important for black people, especially to understand how we got over is a term that I've been yeah. using a lot recently, right? The great migration, 6 million black Americans leaving the South to seek out a new life, to seek out um, new opportunities in a different world. Um, And without that, we wouldn't see my family here in Kansas City. We wouldn't see my family being educators for the last generations. Uh, We wouldn't see the person who you're seeing, not, I guess, not seeing, listening to here in front of you today. Um, uh, So my mother was an educator also. Um, She taught in the Kansas City Public Schools for 30 years. And I think that was really kind of my impetus for getting into education. Uh, I always remember really specifically having instances where her former students would come up and and talk to her about the impact that she made in their lives, right? We're walking through the grocery store 
And three or four times before we can even get to the checkout, it's Miss, oh my God, Miss Ellis, you were such my favorite teacher. I can't believe that you're here. You changed my life. Thank you so much. And sometimes my mom would remember them and sometimes that she wouldn't, but it was always evident to me that she could feel the impact that she made on students and it, it mattered to her too. Uh, so my sister is also an educator. Um, my father was not an educator by trade. He was a nonprofit executive. So I guess I've kind of taken those two and kind yeah. of together. <laughs> you're like you're like the perfect marriage of of a great marriage. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, and I one of the things that I think is is really interesting, you know, when we when we look at our history, you you referred to the Great Migration, and um, this was post slavery as uh, as black Americans were making their way north. What's interesting is so so your family roots are in Mississippi and Arkansas, which are pretty firmly entrenched in like Southland. But Missouri, where they landed, interestingly enough, for folks who don't know, a lot of people consider Missouri to be the South, but actually Missouri is bisected by the Mason-Dixon line, which is the line that kind of, it, it was the slavery line, like below it, in the... Um, Oh my gosh, the Civil War. I almost said the Revolutionary War. <laughs> During the Civil War, uh, when you had two sides fighting against each other, the Mason-Dixon line was where those two sides came together. And so Missouri is home to a lot of battlegrounds. Um, it was a pretty contentious state geography to be in because uh, we were kind of right in the thick of things. And so historically speaking, you know, there's a lot. I, I love the fact that you brought in your, your family's past and your history because it's so it's so affecting how we live our lives today like i mean the fact is i i don't know i just i find it fascinating um so talk to me talk to me a little bit about that you know clearly you're very very in tune with your roots why is that important to you hmm um i think it allows you to be able to understand yourself in the context, right? Yeah. Uh, as a, I'm an amateur historian, right? I don't have letters behind my name, but I enjoy the art of studying not only how I got here, but how the rest of humanity got here, right? How do we, yeah. how do we get to a place where you turn on the news and all you see is Hamas and Israel, right? How did you, yeah. how do we get to this place where um, less than 10% of our students are reading <laughs> at yeah. an effective level in the Kansas City area, right? Uh, and when you ask about some of that history, again, it leads you up to where you are now. If you, if you don't know the history, you kind of feel like you've been kind of dropped in a setting without any context, without any type of, of information of how you got there. Right. Yeah. And it can be very powerful for I've seen the power of it in students for them to understand how we got here, them to understand that you're not an anomaly. You're not just yeah. a speck in space. You are part of a plan. You're a part of a larger opportunity for you and your family to be able to grow and get better and, and be able to see the next generation and build our future together. And yeah. In order to get students to really understand that, they kind of have to look backwards first. And so for me, that 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 moment of being able to be, especially in Kansas City, again, we talk about the history and the location. 
uh, and I kind of alluded to the educational disparities, right? And, and we, yeah. we see that kind of throughout the country in different cities, but Kansas City was a really interesting, interesting case. And if a student doesn't know, you know, this is why the Kansas City Public Schools looks the way it does, right? This is right. why my school district in the suburbs looks the way it does, then it's a little bit easier for them to, to be able to accept their current state. Right. Well, and I, I feel like accepting your current state, like that has to be the first step to changing your current state. You have to understand where we've been in order to understand where we're going. And and so, and I love the fact that what you do with Block, Brothers Liberating Our Communities, um, you're, you're just, that, that, that through line is there, you know, like, let us understand our, our culture, our community, let's show up for each other and for ourselves, but let's first understand that contextual piece that you're talking about. Can you talk to us a little bit about Block and, you know, how that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So Block stands for Brothers Liberating Our Communities. We work to increase the representation of diverse educators in schools, especially Black men. Uh, when we talk about the context and the history here, right, um, here in town, there's a, a education support organization called the W.E.B. Du Bois Learning Center, and it was founded in 1973. It's going on its 50th anniversary this year. It was founded by black men in their early 30s who were engineers in local firms. Right. And yeah. now these men are in their 80s. Right. And they're looking to to keep the torch alive, right? And to keep keep the idea of the Learning Center alive. And they tell this story, right? That in 1954, when we started to integrate the schools, we also started to integrate the corporations, right? And before yeah. 1954, if you were black and you had a PhD, there's very few um, jobs that you could have, right? You'd be a preacher, you'd be a teacher, or you'd be a doctor or a lawyer. And once integration hit and corporations actually started to hire people of color, black men often left the profession to be able to find higher paying roles or higher paying jobs in the corporate space. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of where we started to see this vacation or the vacate of classrooms from men and from men of color. Um, and again, which has led us to this point, right? Only 2% of educators in America are black men right now. Over right. eighty, over seventy percent, between seventy-five and eighty percent of educators are white women, um, and so our our organization is working to flip those numbers and think about how can we make sure that students are being taught by teachers that look like them, that come from the areas that they come from, speak the languages that they speak, um, yeah. and therefore can be more effective. Well, and and so. We've talked on the show about before about culturally competent care, and that is like often so within innovate, the Innovate Her KC community, we often have folks come in and they're asking for like doctors or therapists or things like that who who are Latina or who are women or who are black. And, and I just want to really quickly kind of set the stage like the reason that that is important is one of many reasons that that is important right. is like often we have unconscious biases and often we we a lot of like a lot of things in the medical field were designed for white men and so like w women tend to get left in the cracks when being treated by this industrial medical complex so so culturally competent education it stands to reason that's important too like it is absolutely crucial for these kids to see 
educators who look like them, but not only that, who understand their experience and can help them through that experience and can help engage them in learning that speaks to their experience, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's really important. And so when all of these teachers are white ladies, just like me, like I was very lucky. I never had to question. I always had educators who looked like me. They could serve as examples and they understood who I was and where I came from to, to an extent. But that being said, you know, I didn't have, so I was actually very fortunate. Once again, I had, um, I, there was a meme going around. Tell me if you saw this Cornell, but there was a meme going around where it was like asking, how old were you when you had your first black educator in your, in your life? Did you see this when it went around? It was a while back. Absolutely. And I remember thinking about it because I was like, I actually, my first, um, my first black educator was third grade, third grade, fifth grade. And then in middle school, Mr. Harris, like, so I had a teacher, a black male teacher throughout my formative years, but not everybody was saying, like, it surprised me. Not everybody was saying the same when they were answering this question. They were like, it did, it took until college or I didn't have one the entire time I was in the educational system. So, so that what you're working for is you're trying to, I don't know. You're trying to. We want to make sure that every student. That. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like struggling to come up with the right words for it. I'm so sorry. But what are you trying to do, Cornell? We, you we tell me. Make, we want to make sure that every student has access to at least one yeah. dynamic black male educator in their life, right? Yeah. There's a lot of data that shows the impact of educators on same race students, right? Yeah. One educator on a same race student increases their chances of graduating from high school by over 13%. Two is over 30%. I think more um, or or less researched um, and even more potentially overstated is the impact that we have on students that don't look like us, right? Yeah. Uh, I tutor some students around Kansas City that are not black male students, and I'm the only black male educator that they've experienced in all of their time um, in the Kansas City education system, right? And so I think when we start asking ourselves, I think white people often ask themselves, are like, well, I'm like, I can't be racist. Like I have black friends, right. Or I have black people that I hang out with. I think the next step to that is like, well, like for what? Right. And I think how, what, what is your relationships with, with people of color like in your life? Like, do y'all go, y'all check out Instagram together? Do you guys go watch movies? You guys listen to to TV, to listen to new music or TV shows. Are you asking black people to help you with your business plan? Are you asking black people to help you again, in this case, like, helping grade your papers or look over your math homework, right? Like these are different types of, again, like you said, biases and prejudices or stereotypes that may exist that may be well-intentioned, right? Like I have lots of black friends. We go to, we go to Foot Locker once a week and go look at shoes. But when I need help with my business plan, right, I'm going to go talk to so-and-so over here, right? Right. And so really being able to start to shift that narrative or like what, what what are what are what is the role and what does the black male look like when you think about a black man in your head? What's the image that comes to your head, right? Yeah. Um, similarly, it's kind of like that Google test, right? When you Google criminal, what image comes up? When you Google doctor, yeah. what image comes up? So, by nature of what I do, um, and I, and I, I'm gonna apply the woman's lens to this because it's my lens. No, please do. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. that being said, like often I will have educators reach out to me and be like, "Hey, we want an entrepreneur to come speak to our class, and we we would like it to be a woman." And I'm like, "Fantastic!" And then inevitably, what happens is it turns out that they want this woman to come and speak to a group of girls, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Hey." 
that's cool. More than happy to to send someone your way. But tell me again why we're not putting this woman in front of boys as well. Everyone. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, like, in my head, I'm like, I don't understand why we're not trying to normalize right. women in roles of leadership. And, like, I'm, the boys need to understand just as much that exactly. women can be leaders, women can be competent business professionals, you know. And, and I mean, it stands to reason that the exact same thing happens for black men in education. Like right. you're just not, that's not the archetype that you think of and people aren't used to it. And that it, it will not stand anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. we have to get, we have to close these gaps and we have to bridge these discrepancies so that everyone has equal access to that opportunity. Not, but not only that, everyone has had this normalized for them that it becomes a part of our society so so much so that it's no longer notable because it's still notable right right, right. Yeah. <laughs> let's make it not notable <laughs> yeah. even even further i think around blocks kind of impetus for founding right we see a lot of like you were saying we, we have a, we see a lot of applications out there right now for open positions at schools for deans or yeah. uh, culture coaches or behavior specialists right and a lot of these roles are employed by black men because they create great relationships with students or boy, they yeah. have such a great rapport with so-and-so who we don't really, we can't really handle very well. But where we don't, we don't see black men getting these opportunities to teach AP chemistry, AP math, right? Yeah. Where are they in the high academic areas of our, our institutions, as well as these high culture areas of institutions. So I think that pigeonholing piece that you're mentioning here, right? Like, as a as a person who does who does fit into um, a small box of identity, right? That that folks like to keep in that box, right? Like, yes, we're here yeah. for black students. We're also here for all of your students to be able to yeah. see, right? Like <laughs> what it means to have diverse representation in front of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. Well, I I got to tell you, I want to dive a little bit more deeply into the work that you do, and we're going to do that next. But really quickly, friends, I just want to remind you that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit FullScale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the FullScale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. All right, friends, we are here with Cornell Ellis, the executive director of Block, Brothers Liberating Our Communities. And Cornell, we we had just started to touch on a really, like, this is an important conversation, but I want to talk tactically for just a moment. Talk to us about what Block does. You know, we, we know that your goal, your mission is to involve, entice, you know, bring more Black men into the field of education. And then I, I love what you added right before the jump where you were like, hey, let's also get them into those like administrative the roles, those high academic roles, you know, not just kind of like, oh, here's your pat on the head. Here's your, you know, I don't know, group engagement coordinator position or what have you, but like in roles of leadership, because there is a distinction there. You know, when I look, when I look through my women's lens, when I'm looking at like C-suites, I, I get really excited when I see women in roles that are donate, dedicated to like marketing and HR. Sure. But I want to see them in the CEO spot. And right. I want to see them COOs, CFOs, right. like the people that are making these really crucial decisions. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, let's elevate these men who have been historically excluded and degraded. And, you know, let's elevate them to the point where they aren't just part of the field. 
they're actually leading the field. Right. 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 <laughs> they're the most important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I love that you said that, but I want to hear a little bit more about how Block does the work. So yeah. how are you enticing Black men to join the education field? Absolutely. So, so a lot of our work really centers in the retention and the sustainment space. So I think what really makes us unique, a lot of organizations may talk about recruiting more Black educators. A lot of organizations may talk about um, training more Black educators. Um, but I think our organization really focuses on helping educators see their career as something they could do for a full lifetime. So yeah. uh, we'd like to think of our theory of change as kind of like a clay jar. So bear with me here. If you think about a clay cup or a jar that holds or bears water or some kind of wonderful liquid, Kool-Aid of your preference, right? And on that jar, there's holes and cracks, right? Along the sides, on the bottom, there's a hole coming out of the bottom. And that just means that everything that you pour into the jar just falls right out of the side. And the jar is the education system. The education system is broken. It's cracked. It's got holes in the sides. It's anything that you pour into it is falling right out of the side of it. Most educators yeah. are leaving the field within three to five years. Black educators are leaving the field within one to three years. Black men are not just leaving their schools within one to three years. They're leaving education in general. They're quitting the field and moving on to do something different, right? How can we kind and of... Re really quickly, so, so why do you think that is? Like, I imagine, I know that education is becoming more difficult as a field mm -hmm. as time like the pandemic you know virtual schooling entitled parents like it's becoming a very tricky field to to engage in yeah. for for anyone but why specifically talk to us about the specific barriers that black men are experiencing that are frustrating to them to the point where they're not just like walking away from the role they're like i'm done i wash my hands of yep. education i'm yep. finished can you talk Absolutely. to us a little bit about that yeah, I think that our organization seeks to alleviate a lot of those pressures that they experience in a really unique way. So our three mm -hmm. pillars are really are connect, develop, and engage. So everything that we do kind of goes back to these three pillars, right? Connection kind of breaks down that first problem, which we see is isolation. Like Black men only being 1.7% of the population, probably only one of me here in this building, one of me here in this district, one of me here on this side of town. How can we break down those isolation, those walls of isolation, get guys to get to know each other, get connected so that they can have a network that then help they can lean on, help be able to build off of. The development yeah. piece comes second. It's really like we want to pour into these black male educators. Most of the professional development that's created for, for education is for the majority of educators, white women. I don't need professional development on how to build relationships with Timmy and Timmy's parents. I need professional development on how not to talk crazy to my white female principal when she calls me an angry black man for the third time this week in an email. Yeah. I don't really know how to respond without losing my damn job, right? These right. are the types of professional developments that black male educators are uniquely positioned to, to need to be able to, to have conversations about. Uh, a lot of those hotbed issues that you talked about, how do I deal with parents around having conversations about like it, it's illegal for me to talk about my family or my family comes from because they were slaves, right? That's that's pretty much where we are in talking yeah. about history in our country, right? And I mean, this is this is the conversation that we have around critical race theory, right? And right. I mean, there there are people who are like knock down, drag out, just 
they refuse to talk about it. They refuse to entertain it as a, a topic of history. Right. And the fact is, like, speaking to your point, so I, I, I think that like from from things that i've read and things that i've heard they want to protect the white children's feelings we right. don't want to make these white kids feel bad because their ancestors did really shitty things to human beings who didn't yeah. deserve it we don't want those white kids to feel bad but then you have to you have to remember well what about the little black kids out there who are having their history completely erased we're trying to don't figure you out that how makes they, them feel bad we're trying to figure out how they got dumped into this place yeah where- with a, with a, like, so, yeah. so we are once again placing, you know, whiteness on a pedestal and we are erasing a very ugly, ugly part of our history. I mean, believe yeah. you me, I take no pride in it. But that being said, I also know that it's really important to recognize it. You like, take pride in recognizing it. And adjust- Let's not do it again. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> Exactly. So, so at, at any rate, like I, I hear that so much. Like that, I apologize. I had to bust in because, like, that just resonated with me really hard. So sorry Absolutely. about that. But, but, think- but offering development for black men that speaks to their own experience, in, right. including like those microaggressions that they right. might get right. from the people around them. Yep. So I mean, I get calls every day. I get calls every day from guys in the network. Right? You wouldn't believe this email that I just got. You wouldn't believe what yeah. I had to go through today kind of have to talk guys off the ledge, right? And then create some professional yeah. development to be able to help codify the skills that we're creating to help them navigate those yeah. tricky waters. And then engagement. Sure. So the third pillar is just kind of getting guys outside of the four walls of their school, right? So when you think about community centers, mentoring, tutoring opportunities that we help supplement some payments for, for um, in community um, black male mentors and tutors pockets, um, and really create opportunities for guys to think about education as not just something that happens inside their own school, right? Yeah. So when we create the connect, develop, engage, and really and really work through those three pillars, we start to create like an all-encompassing experience for black male educators that then helps them feel like, you know, this is something that not only I love doing, right? That wasn't the problem. They've always loved doing it. It just wasn't really worth it, right? Yeah, we don't make it. Juice wasn't worth the squeeze for sure. Juice was not worth the squeeze. When we add the connection to the network, when we add this professional development that really makes them the best educator in their building, we add the engagement. So now they're they're being thanked by community members for their work and their service for being black male educators. Right now, the juice starts to become a little bit more. Yeah, just a little sweeter. Right. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I'm curious about. So you're supporting, you're supporting individuals who are within the field now. And I think that that's amazing, but is the goal kind of to create that pipeline? Like if we have more black men represented within education, then black children will see this and then we'll be inspired to join. Or are you actively, yeah, (laughs) right now I'm being pointed at, I'm getting a head nod. So so I assume that that's the case, but are you doing anything with younger folks who are thinking of maybe joining the education profession? Yeah, you do a great job at creating that that ecosystem theory of change, right? Where the the most important thing that we can do for the next generation of educators, I'm going to say this really slowly so so your listeners can hear it. The most important thing that we can do for our for the next generation of educators is to make their experience not shitty right now. Like if we can- do you want to re- Wait, do you want to say it again? Let's underscore it. <laughs> if we want kids to even think about being teachers, we have to make sure that school doesn't suck right now. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> if school sucks right now, why would a kid ever want to come back to it as an educator? Right. right. It makes zero sense. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Step one, if we keep, if we retain 100% of the educated, the block, 100% of block members in education for a lifetime, that will significantly shift the experience that young people are having currently in schools to a more positive one, therefore yeah. potentially encouraging them to become um, interested in, in education again later. I think secondarily to your point, though, this doesn't happen that passively. Um, yeah. We don't we don't close the representation gap, um, hoping that more black men decide to be educators. We have to be very intentional about that effort. So, yeah, we're we're if you the, one of our colleagues did a study. Um, if you ask your your average white female teacher, when was the first time someone told them that they would make a great educator? It's around third grade. If you ask a black male educator, when was the first time someone told them that they make a great educator? It was post bachelors, right? And so if we can quicken that trend up, we can shorten that trend. If we can shorten that leash, right? Uh, We have a curriculum for as early as third graders using just a show and tell model. It's really cute and really fun. Uh, We ask kids to pick their favorite thing. Uh, What is it? You like to wash your dog? You like to tie your shoes? Do you like to clean? You like to sweep the floor with your parents? You like to color? (laughs) whatever it is break it down in steps and then go ahead up to the front of the classroom and kind of show the class those steps of your favorite thing and then they just take a quick survey that asks them how they felt about being in front of their teammates sharing information talking to their teammates about what they love because at the end of the day that's all education is education is trying to get other people to love what you love in the same way to see something that you see the way that you see it. So we've started to think about students, like I said, as early as third grade getting, and you know, what's really funny. The kids that always have the best show and tells are the kids that are always in trouble. Yeah. The I kids- bet, Cause often the kids who are, well, so first of all, really quickly, we, there, there is a component of this conversation that speaks to the policing of black bodies. The fact is black children are penalized for their behavior more often than white children, even when, uh, the behavior is identical. Starting and so, in kindergarten. So really, really quickly, I just want to I want to honor and acknowledge that. Like Starting in kindergarten. But that being said, often the kids who act out are the kids who are bored. <laughs> and so if you engage them and put them in front of people and turn them into turn them into an educator, uh, you know, you're engaging them in a way that they probably haven't had to had to do before. They have, they've never done this before. It's new and it's different. And I imagine that it would be really, really satisfying yeah. to to be a kid and realize like, hey, I'm an expert in something. Yeah. Maybe they didn't phrase it exactly that way in their mind, but that's I mean, really cool. All educators have a have a tad bit, maybe even more, of an ego, and like just for a kid to be up there and notice, like, oh, this is pretty cool, right? All eyes yeah. on me, like, okay, yeah. that's usually like what it. they're looking for, anyway, right? Yeah. That's usually why they're performing that's the behavior right. that they're performing. <laughs> so I've, I've had teachers like Lily be like, oh my god, I've never had Johnny do anything except for the show and tell activity that you all did. Yeah. And, that's and because, if you can just 
if you can just get in like a little germ, like just, mm -hmm. just pop it in there. Like it grows. Like yep. you just, you have to have, you have to have the moment, like the, ins the moment of inspiration, but then like keep growing it, you know, right. but if you can get that one little moment and you can, you can foster it and you can encourage it. Like you're changing kids' lives through, through like a one little tiny piece of a curriculum, you know, like you probably don't even know the impact that it's having. Well, I think they, they often also don't understand the impact that it's having for them to for them to notice something about themselves, whether or not they liked it or not. They yeah. go, they leave off. And a lot of times education is not metacognitive for students like that. It doesn't allow students the time to sit and think about what am I thinking and what am right. I feeling? Right. We're just kind of getting over this hump to get kids to think about their social and emotional health. Right. Right. So if we can kind of get kids in this way where they can start to identify, what am I good at? What are my talents? What are my strengths? What do I not like? What does my body physiologically not respond well to? And how right. can I pick a career or pick things in my life or pick an identity as I start to form that to be able to center around the things that I'm good at and avoid the things that I'm not or not necessarily avoid yeah. things that I'm not grow in the things that I'm not. Right. Well, and I do think so. So we're seeing this shift, and I—you're the educator. This is just something I've kind of noticed as a an outside third party, but I'm seeing a shift um, to experiential education mm -hmm. as well. Um, how do we involve kids in their own learning? How do we how do we teach kids how to think rather than what to think? Because mm -hmm. I think that historically it's all been kind of about indoctrination. Like if you don't fall in line, if you don't behave exactly this way, if you don't do these very prescribed, take these very prescribed steps to your future, like you're an anomaly. And so right. I find I find this shift to experiential ed education really, really interesting. And as you said, like that that psychosocial component that has historically been missing. Um, it's really ratifying to see it come up. Now, I want to talk to you. I'm very curious about this. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit. I want to get back to the educators because I understand like education is changing. The world is changing. The way that we think about the world is changing and, and you have to be responsive to that. Are we forewarning these, these educators and potential educators that you're talking? Are we saying like, hey, just so you know, we're going to go through a really shit time. <laughs> we're going to be on like the forefront of changing the face of education. We're going to, we're going to diversify it. We're going to do all of these amazing things, but it's going to really suck for a little bit until we get to a certain point, you know, is that kind of part of the understanding? Like I do this so that others can have an easier path. That's interesting. Um, I would hope that we're done with the shitty part. It's been pretty shitty for a little while now, right? And as we think about the way that education has shifted just in the last five years, right? Yeah. When the pandemic started, educators everywhere were praising the heavens, thinking that finally education can start to change in a way that was way overdue the classroom yeah. looks exactly the way the same did 100 years ago. The school schedule still is exactly the same way it was 100 years ago. 
it's completely and this weekend the block is up for a national education innovation award called the yas prize i i actually saw that this morning did you just announce that on linkedin i did yeah we, we i saw found, that i was totally i was so excited for you and i was like i'm gonna talk to him later today yeah <laughs> we just found out that we were semi-finalists so over two thousand applications across the country we're in the top 32 and thinking about the way that we can change education for generations to come, right? Yeah. And a lot of conversations in these spaces are around AI, right? And mm-hmm. how AI is starting to transform education. I think that we started thinking about it when when the pandemic started. Unfortunately, as soon as we got the opportunity, we ran back to normal, right? Right. I remember these conversations two years ago now, right? We were having literally this conversation about how innovative Zoom classrooms were and how many, well, the opportunities that we could have. Kids are Zooming across the world and education can change forever. And now we're fighting to open up schools and get kids back in seats because yeah. that's what the federal government is demanding, right? Because we need to get MAP scores for the year, yeah. right? Like that's where we at. So. Yeah. I I hope in my in my heart of hearts that we've been shaken to our core significantly to the point now and that some people have woken up to the point where they're not going back, right? Where yeah. we see that what we're doing isn't working. We may not know where we're going yet. Right. But we've like I said, I mentioned a little bit of data before. I think it's, it's 49% of students in America are literate. 49%, all students, not even just black students, all students, yeah. right? And if that's okay for you, if you're listening to this and that seems like, yeah, one in two Americans should be able to read the Wall Street Journal, that sounds about right, then we're not on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I just find it, I, I love that you brought that up because the the fact is, we know, we know, like the data, everything that I'm talking about, and in y'all know this by now, like I am terrible at retaining like where I read things and like statistics <laughs> and stuff. But the fact is like, this is actually empirically proven by data time and time again. Like we know <laughs> that, that these things are absolutely true. We know that the pandemic put a huge wrench in the long-term learning of a lot of students because we were so unprepared. We didn't, and, and I'm not saying the educators were, I'm saying that the infrastructure of America oh. was so, oh. so, unprepared both Uh, yeah well i don't i don't want to knock educators because i i really really feel like y'all are just throwing everything you can at some really hairy problems (laughs) so i i don't want to play i love teachers like y'all do i i actually so during the pandemic all right so i work as a mentor uh or i volunteer as a mentor for a couple of organizations and i just remember like i did it i i had done it before zooms and then i did one on zoom and i was like i don't know how educators are doing this like keeping Mm -hmm. the kids engaged and keeping the kids like it was so hard (laughs) and i'm just like i i am so glad that we can pay people to do this every day Let's pay them all the money. Make it rain, please. (laughs) Because I couldn't do it. Like, I was like, this thing that was seemingly relatively easy before, now, like, in the midst of this pandemic and even post-pandemic, it's so much harder. Mm -hmm. And it was hard before. (laughs) So I just... 
Right. All the love in the world to educators out there. But I will say that like we were unprepared. We were caught unawares by this global thing. And we have kids who there, there's a gap there now. There is a learning gap and there are opportunity gaps that come about as a result of learning gaps. Right. And, and it's got, it got more pronounced problem. over the pandemic also. Right. Like we yeah. kind of starting to see a bounce back a little bit in the data. We just got 2022 data back. And we're seeing a little bit of growth from from 21 to 22, but the drops mm -hmm. from 20 to 21 were really bad. Were drastic, significant. Yeah, yeah, and it's like the the lost years of education. Like we're right. gonna look back it, when we write in the history books. We're gonna be like, hey, remember when like we there just didn't know how to teach our kids? <laughs> well, it, well, we had to reinvent what it meant to think about student success, right? And and yeah. that's kind of the conversations that we're having on the policy level is to think about what, what does it mean to hold schools accountable that are not doing getting the job done? What does it mean right. to measure school effectiveness in a really honest and and uh, really effect and, and really and really thorough way, right? What does it mean to really fund schools that are doing yeah. great work and recognize schools that are really doing great work? Um, right now, a lot of those systems, like you were saying before, the inadequacy or the unpreparedness of the teachers was a reflection of the inadequacy and unpreparedness of the system, right? Yes. I think um, Ed, you said Ed that prep, much more eloquently than I ever did. At <laughs> uh, prep programs across the country were thrown a wrench, right? And I think the only thing that moves slower than the federal government are universities. The yeah. federal government is very slow to to rethink about some of these policies and things that I'm talking about right around funding right. funding formulas and school accountabilities right they're all things that the state house have a conversation on but they're big issues even more bigger than that are you trying to get universities to think about how are they recruiting and preparing a next generation of teachers the ed prep programs are even more white and female than the current educator populations and so that's also a part like when you again when we think about what students were recruiting to to the next generation of schools i'm also going to colleges and talking to basketball teams baseball teams right because a lot of the young black men in schools are not in the education department right yeah but they're about to graduate and may not have an idea of, of what they want to do next that's how i ended up in education just and you're wanting. suddenly you're just like here here I am. Do I have an idea for you? Right. Well, when I just heard you yell at that guy across the across the whole campus. Wouldn't you? Don't you have a great teacher voice? <laughs> I love it. So you're finding the opportunities everywhere you can find them. I I dig that so much. So I wanna I I wanna ask you. I wanna kind of turn it around a little bit. Now I'm gonna ask for your advice. Um. So what would you like to see i mean clearly we know that you would love to see more black men get involved in the education field like that's been pretty well established but what are some of the other pieces what is it going to take for our educational system to heal itself to to proactively grow and get better and and and, and do what it's designed to do teach our kids you know so prepare them prepare them for adulthood prepare them for the world what yeah, what do you think is it, it's going to take to be informed citizens um I think I had this conversation the other day and I asked I asked the interviewer, um, do I have, am I in reality or do I have a magic wand, right? Because I think that- You have a magic wand for this conversation. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and that that creates like this, this fantasy world of, 
uh, aborting, um, aborting prep school that um, has multi-generational family involvement um, that represent, that has a teacher population that, that exactly mirrors the student population. Um, and, and there's lots of different options and choices around the city for schools to be able, for kids to be able to choose from. Right. Uh, yeah. I think like that's a system. And when you say, when you say like assist, like do what the system is supposed to do, I think like that's a, that's the toughest part to swallow. I think sometimes for, for educators and for black educators, you know, when you look at some of the language, when you look at some of the legislation, when you look at the way that this country was built and unfolded, the system actually is working the way it's supposed to, right? Like, yeah, well, capitalism, capitalism, that's absolutely true, right? The system was designed to leave people behind, specifically black and brown people, people who have been historically excluded to an extent, women, although we're closing gaps quicker than other population. But like, yeah, the system was actually, that's when we start talking about things like systemic barriers and like systemic oppressions that are very real within our society. But the fact, people are like, well, the, the school system isn't doing what it's designed. No, it absolutely is. It, it was it's, designed, it's designed to, to create this. workers. <laughs> it's designed that's to create right. workers. And, well, and that's, and it was, that's it, what it I was, was saying. designed to benefit people within the the white people, but right. people within the dominant dominant demographic group. Well, you that's know, what I was, I was saying earlier, right? Like when you when you look at our our literacy data, and some people some people listening to this will say, no, I, I don't think that forty nine. No, I don't think that half the kids in America shouldn't be able to read. But they also think that that there's people should be laborers, and there are people that should be working on factory lines, people that should be and the, and the CEOs, right? There's doctors, and then there's laborers, right? Yeah. So in, in a capitalist society, there's there's winners and there's losers. There's always got to be a defined top right. and bottom class, and so what you have to think about what right? I I hope I wish with my magic wand that the system is able to be rebuilt and rewritten in a way as to, again, change the narrative. Imagine if, imagine a world where every police officer, every doctor, every judge had a black male educator, right? Yeah. And so now when the police officer pulls over, pulls me over on the highway, he doesn't see the super predator from the news, yeah. he doesn't see doesn't the narrative. See the, the, the quote unquote thug or like the person who's gonna, you know, rob him or, you know, yeah, yeah. he sees his <laughs> beloved sixth grade English teacher, Mr. Ellis. Right. Right. You've when, become uh, humanized when right. before you were a monolith. Right. 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 <laughs> you mentioned it earlier, right? When the doctor wheels in a gunshot victim, right? And the gunshot victim looks like me, is he gonna see another gang war or is he gonna see yeah. a human being laying on the table? that is seeking support, right? When when the judge sees the defendant come across him for sentencing, does he see just another black man that he needs to rid the streets of? Or does he see a father and a human being and a son and a brother and someone yeah. that contributes to society in a positive way, right? So the, the, the vision is that Brothers Liberating Our Community starts to shift the narrative of what black men are in this country. And I think that yeah. we've created, we've done a lot. I was listening to, I'm on the Kansas City Mayor's uh, Reparations Commission also. And I'm the Education Subcommittee Chair. And yesterday I was on the health the health side and they were having conversations about, again, you were mentioning it earlier, reproductive rights with Black women, 
um, the history of gynecology, right? And one thing that we don't understand or talk about a lot as much is the forced sterilization of black men um, yeah. and the, the misgendering and the um, just the horrific torture that black men endured as uh, head of households to intentionally disrupt communities, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Block is working to, to flip that narrative, to rethink, yeah. and reshape, redesign black males and their narrative in America. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you actually, I, I will admit to you like that, that piece of medical history is not actually something that I knew a, a whole lot about. Like I read, um, have you ever read the, I've talked about this book on the show before, but the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Yes. Have you ever read this book? Yeah. Freaking love this book. It was written by a lady named Rebecca Sloot and she does just an incredible job of talking about like the, un the, the, the unconscionable, um, exploitation of this woman and her cells and I, you know, definitely check it out. Um, but I mean, there, there's so much more to the story and we have actually gone wildly over time, Cornell. I just, I hope that you know that because, and I'm going to be late for my, my meeting, but I just, I hope that you know that like every piece of this conversation, I've been like, there are like six things that I want to follow up on and drill yeah. down on because it's been so interesting, but we do have to bring it in and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you the human question. Are Sorry. you ready? Yes. It, it feels a little like, I feel like I'm going to like kind of lighten it up after what was a very necessary, but also very, you know, tense conversation. Uh, so my question is, tell us, do you have a song that makes you sing along whenever you hear it? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so I just told you I was in with the Yas Prize. The Yas Prize was in Cleveland. Uh, shout out to Janine and Jeff, if you all get to hear this. Thanks for bringing us together at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. they asked on our original application, what's your favorite rock and roll song? And Stevie, Stevie Wonder is my favorite artist of all time. So um, I wrote down the song As by Stevie Wonder. Um, it's my mother's favorite song. It's my favorite song. Oh. Um, I was I love uh, Signed, Sealed, Delivered. Absolutely. I think that's my oh, my yeah. favorite from him. But yeah, no, a, incredible artist. Uh, good choice. And I got I got to tell you, Cornell, thank you so much for appearing on the show. I'm I'm so excited that we had to have this conversation or got to have this conversation. Um, let's let's keep it going. You and I are yeah, gonna grab coffee let's do a part at some point, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, friends. Well, another, you know, having Cornell on the show, I knew it was going to be good. Another really good thing. If you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. They have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and then let the platform match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced software yeah. engineers, testers, and leaders. At FullScale, they specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more when you visit FullScale.io. And friends, check us out on social media. We are always looking for ideas on guests to have, topics to cover. We do this show for you. Well, I do it because it's kind of fun for me, but we really do it for you. So let us know what you want to hear, what you want to what you want to talk about. We invite your your thoughts. Definitely check us out. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all of the socials. I'm pretty sure we're on. Yeah, we've got a chat group on Facebook. So check us out. Talk to us. Tell us what you want to hear. But above all, keep on coming back and listening to Startup Hustle. We will catch you next time. 
Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.